in the living room of, of uh, Grant Palmer. Grant, thanks for uh, having us over here. It's uh, it's wonderful to meet you in person. I've read your books. I've read about you in the Farms Journal and in the Deseret News and everywhere else. And you've become sort of an icon in the uh, in the what, what do we say the liberal Mormon world. So thanks for uh, thanks for having us over. Um, happy to have you. You're well known to a lot of people, but there's a, a whole section of other people who may not know exactly who you are. So um, maybe we can start back at the beginning. Um, uh, you started out your career in uh, CES, is that right? Yes, uh, 34 years uh, with CES. I actually started in uh, the Church College of New Zealand, teaching uh, science and uh, British Empire history. Wow. And then moved into the religion department. Now, the, the, that's one of those colleges that the church owns to, for secular education, right? That's right, but it's kind of like a, a, a little, uh, like a high school junior college is okay. what, what this one was. And they've just torn it all down, uh, so it's all gone now. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, that's too bad. So what were you doing down there? Uh I just thought I'd like to see the world through young eyes, and uh, my wife and I were, you know, fairly newly married, and we decided we wanted to go go someplace, so we went down there. And uh, then I went from science and uh, British Empire history into the religion department. They had a couple of classes, and I got to liking that. I mean, I've been a, you know, I mean, a, a very successful missionary. I mean. I went to the Central Atlantic States Mission in 1960 through 62. In 62, we actually led the world in convert baptism. So I was kind of full of myself when I came home. and I, So I, w I was open to, to uh, wanting to teach religion. I was one of those missionaries who carried the missionary spirit with me for 10 years after I came <laughs> home. None of the earrings two weeks after you come home and none of that. <laughs> Uh, that that's I I uh I had some of that myself, but not not as strong. I actually applied at the MTC at one time. I don't know how that would have worked out or not, but I can understand that. So um so you you entered into the church educational um the church church educational system is that what the S stands for system or uh yes. So, and you spent a lot of years there teaching. Uh, 30, very, 34 years. Mm -hmm. And um, you ended up in like a superintendent role or? No, I was a, I was a three-time institute director. Okay. And, uh, but the last, uh, oh, 13 years of my career, I, I started having a lot of doubts about the faith. And so I went to my file leader and I says, you know, uh, I'd, I, I wouldn't mind getting out of the Mormon classroom, and I understand there's an opening at the Salt Lake County Jail where you only taught uh, biblical studies that would suit all inmates, and uh, they accommodated me. And I had told my file leader I was struggling, and I, I didn't hold any punches back. Wow. And, uh, you know, farms kind of makes me look like this devious person. <laughs> but they're, they're wrong. They're just simply wrong about it. It's uh, So I went down there, and I... It was a wonderful experience. In fact, The Incomparable Jesus, uh, a lot of material in that book uh, is what I taught inmates. Wow. Uh, now, 
farms could say what they will and, and they will. Um, but you know, in, and, in, have. and have, <laughs> uh, you know, in my experience, I've, I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of people, um, inside and outside the church and all areas in between. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people who teach at BYU or whatever, and I'll take you aside in private and say, you know, I gave up belief a long time ago, but I have my pension, I have my family. And so I think it's actually a rare and, and a move of integrity to be able to do that. I can't, I can't imagine having your job and going to your file leader and saying, having a struggle of faith, because in my experience, the church doesn't take that stuff very well. No, they don't. I, I, I really struggled. Uh, uh, my wife's mother was um was was ill and so we came back from northern california here and the only opening was seminary and for a guy that had been offered to the directorship at usc in southern california who was uh-huh. more of a teacher's teacher uh it was quite an adjustment to actually teach high school seminary teachers for the first time in my life after i'd been uh, you know, in the Institute all those years. And uh, it was a struggle. I was never an A seminary teacher. I can tell you, I was more like a B minus, but I got better at it. And it, it made me a better teacher because you, you had, to, you have to be organized when you teach high school students. Well, you know, I, I, um, when I was in high school, especially my senior year, I loved the scriptures. I loved the church. I loved the church history. And I hated seminary because it was so dumbed down. It was so aimed at the lowest common denominator. And it was just frustrating to me. And I can't imagine now as an adult, you know, because I would just blame mentally the seminary teachers. But for for the struggle for me, it must have been tenfold to be a, a seminary teacher and have to go through that. Well, yes, they're, they're you know, a lot of them are there uh, maybe kind of against their will they don't exactly want to be there there's no credit there's no <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah this kind of thing and uh, there is a kind of a entertainment factor to it all there, there's there's good teachers in the system but I, I think the kids are kind of don't take it as seriously as the teachers would like them to yeah yeah i'd agree i i think i look back on my teachers and two of them were kind of average and two of them i think were really good so mm-hmm. so yeah i don't have any complaint that way um, so you end up in the prison. You, you, you taught down at Point of the Mountain? No, Salt Lake County Jail. Oh, that's a, that's more transitory, that Yes, yeah, so I got to see almost everybody who comes to the system uh, right. during that 13 years uh, because, they're, you know, they're, there's no federal prisons in Utah, so we have the federal prisoners, prisoners come through there and go their way out of state. Uh-huh. Um, they wanted me to go down to the prison, but I, I felt like there was more... Uh, chance for reform of those that weren't quite as hardened as those down at the <laughs> right, prison. Right. Well, I, you know, because in my career uh, working software, I've been in a lot of jails. So mm-hmm. I've worked with that population. And in a jail, most people are there only 30 or 60 days other than those federal contracts. So you'd get a lot of... Oh, a lot of... Yes. Uh, some of them would be there a year. Uh-huh. Uh, a number of them six months. Some of them is even 18 months. But you're right. It's very transitory. Yeah. There's a lot of anxiety because they don't know what the judges. They're waiting to be sentenced, basically. Yes, they get very anxious when the the unknown is a is is a challenging thing for people, all of us. So, how was that message received? I mean, you were obviously there for a lot of years. I think very well. Uh, I um, I was very pleased with what happened down there uh, at the jail, the the teaching, the response. Um, This is where I really started to really get into the New Testament. 
because Mormons often read the uh, New Testament through the through the eyes of church leaders, and I've always felt that we should see our religious leaders through the eyes of Jesus. And I think that's an important distinction because when you start seeing Jesus through the eyes of religious leaders, then you get their point of view of Jesus. But when you can see religious leaders through the point through the eyes of Jesus, then then your eyes become wide open. And I highly recommend that to 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 those who. Uh, read the New Testament. Just read what it says. Don't bring your background to it or read the subtitles. Just uh, see what he's saying. And uh, it's surprising. Uh, there's a different personality there, you know. I, I think Jesus has a... The, the, the New Testament Jesus is uh, his personality, his behavior, and his doctrinal emphasis is much different than the Mormon Jesus in those three areas? I know for me personally, you know, I had, growing up in the church as a missionary, I'd always read the scriptures, especially the New Testament and the Old Testament, as like this proof text, as this this, this quote mining source to defend the doctrines or the mm -hmm. teachings. And that happened to me as I was going through my faith crisis. And I got a, I, I got rid of my King James and, you know, read the, you know, the Oxford version and read the New International Version. And then I engaged the book for what the book was. And it was a whole other experience. Exactly. Um, it, it, the, the book came to life for, for me. So uh, I, I can back that up. That, that was my experience also. Now, I want to return and talk a little bit about more about, you know, um, uh, Jesus and, uh, and your views on that. Uh, but first, I think a lot of people are interested in what happened now. You published, it was 2003. 2002. Uh, 2002, okay. November. <laughs> when you published the Insider's View on Mormon Origins. And I was talking to Tom Kimball at Signature Books just a few months ago, and he tells me it has remained their best-selling book. And to this day, they move more copies of that per month than, than their, their other works. So, so you're their, you're their, you're their A-man. Well, I thought it would sell well. They they thought it would just have a student niche, but it's turned to have it's turned out to to be a, a, of interest to almost all all people in and out of the church. And I think we contribute some of that to you know farms and those guys. Uh, an unprecedented five reviews. Um, uh, five plus a couple in uh, fair. Uh -huh. Seven or eight. They spilt more ink uh, <laughs> in reviewing my book. Than, uh, than, than are, are uh, pages in my book. <laughs> and it, it was picked up nationally, wasn't it? Well, as I sat down with my state president, I, I told him, I says, you know, I don't, this book's only selling 75 copies a month. And I says, if you, uh, if you make a big deal out of this, I know I know the boys at Signature want to are itching to get this thing out internationally in the news, and of course that's what happened. I I think it went in six hundred newspapers, according to Tom Kimball. It was in China and, and Australia and England and everywhere, and and then it started selling a thousand a month. You see, so was it the church court, the disciplinary hearing yes. that did it? Yes, that's what triggered it, and I. I, I just told my state president I, I'll probably get a peptic ulcer out of it, and you're going to get a lot of bad publicity, but he, they, they go ahead with stuff, you know. They usually make the wrong decisions. 
Now, were you active at the time when they called you in? Yes. So, w- were they surprised when they found out you'd written the book, your 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 church leaders? Yeah, I'd never. I taught the high priest for sixteen years. They, uh-huh. most of them, never even. In fact, virtually none of them knew I'd even written the book, and and I didn't bring what I knew to the discussions. Particularly, I you know pretty well did what they wanted me to do. Now, the book itself um, brings up some of the, um, I would say, problematic issues with uh, some of the doctrine and some of the history, but you wrote it from a, a, a faithful perspective, not a, not an apologetic perspective like Farms would, but um, you, were not, you were, I mean, it's an insider view. You weren't trying to say the church is false through and through. It's the untrue church. You should go find a new church because of these issues. No, I, I didn't start with a conclusion first, which is what uh, which is what uh, Farms does. In fact, Jack Welch, I remember talking to his uh, mentor at Duke, Charlesworth. I asked uh, Charlesworth one day, I says, uh, what do you think of your pupil, uh, Jack Welch? And he says, I wish he'd look at the facts and then draw the conclusions instead of starting with the conclusion and then looking around for facts. You know, we're, none of us are terribly, uh, uh, totally objective. And if there's anyone who wanted to be the church to be what it claimed to be, I think it, I was I was in that top 5% that wanted it to be what it claimed to be. But I, I just, you know, I, look, I started looking at this in 2005 and... Uh, and, and put it down and picked it up over the years. And, and I mean, I talked to our best historians. In the, I mean, you're, you're kind of young to know some of the best historians that, that, <laughs> that, that we've had. But I talked to a good many of them, and they typically say things like, well, yeah, we have problems, or uh, we, you know, I, that's a good question, but I don't think we have a very good answer to that, and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I just, you know, I... I did what I found, what I found, and then, and then when my wife died, I, I put it aside for well three or four years, and then picked it up and started over again, and, and found that the problems are even more, more problematic than I had thought, and then, and then I submitted the manuscript to Signature Books, I think, in two thousand one or two thousand, and they wanted a conclusion, and I. I, I finally had to admit I don't have any faith-promoting conclusion, <laughs> and so I, I wrote the conclusion and felt that we should emphasize Jesus in the church. I still believe that. I wish they would, uh, and kind of the rest is history. You know, I think that that criticism that that you levied, I think, hit home just from a lot of the. They would never acknowledge you in that, but I've seen that. But it's almost like they still don't know how to do it. It's like they, they've they appended it on, but I, I still don't think the church really does know how to engage engage you know the New Testament and engage Christianity. Well, I gave a talk at Sunstone, and that's all I talked about, how to have Christ as a more centered experience in the LDS church. And, and uh, I think if they did a little work on it, they could easily do it, but uh, I don't know if you want to go that direction of what they could do, but... Uh, sure, I'm, I'm all for giving the church oh, advice. 
<laughs> well, Easter, you know, is, is kind of a non non event in the LDS Church. Absolutely. In fact, this this year again, our state conference is on Easter Sunday, and I said to the state president, I says, "Well, in in order to accommodate that, they have a fast Sunday a week early, or you know." Mm-hmm. And I says, "Well, why don't you just uh, you know, there's twelve fast and testimony meetings a a, a, a a year, and there's only one Easter. Why don't you just?" You know, do away with one of the fast Sundays and and really focus on Easter. You know, and but that that doesn't go anywhere. It just I don't know what it is, uh, but it's uh, there. There are many things that could be done, and I uh, and I gave that talk so long ago I can't remember <laughs> all of the things. But um, there are there are a number of things you could do. Well, I noticed that myself. Um, you know, growing up, and I was I grew up in a very devout home. But Easter was more, mostly a secular holiday for us. It was the Easter eggs and, and you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And we spent a couple of years recently living out of the state. We were on the East Coast. And I was amazed at how celebratory Easter the Easter season is, you know, with Lent and with Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and just all this, all these, the, these elements that, um, you know, like Mormons would talk about the, the temple being a type and a symbol and we've sort of cut all of that stuff out of our culture, all that stuff that surrounds, you know, the, the importance of, of, of Easter. And that that's one of those things where, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, but where I think sometimes in the Mormon faith, we miss out on what everybody else is doing. We misunderstand it and misinterpret it. Well, for a Christian, that's that's the big holiday, you know. Right. And, 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 and if you go to Protestant services even around here or Catholic, uh, they make a big deal out of the last week of the of of Jesus's life. Mm-hmm. They they talk about this happened and this is what happened and this is what happened and then um, they might take two Sundays to do that. We don't even mention it. When my wife and I, when we uh, quit going to the, the the Mormon church, we we attended the Unitarian church for for about four or five years, and they emphasize the Unitarians who you know who don't. You know, don't ex- don't necessarily accept uh, you know Christianity. They spend more time talk every year. We would spend two Sundays and talk about the pageantry and the teachings and all that. Much more emphasized than the LDS. Well, here's another thing: uh, the the um, in, in the LDS Sunday School, they only deal with the New Testament once every four years, and the Gospels <laughs> about three or four months of that every four years. Right. So there's not a lot of focus on the life and ministry. They're pretty good about seeing about him in the sacramental service. They drop his name a lot. They close in the name of Christ. The sacrament is focused there. But the talks, very little on the life and ministry of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think very much for the church, Christ has become a symbol um, and yeah. if you look at the art, you see that all the time, this symbolic representation of Christ. Yeah. But that Christ as a teacher, Christ as an example, mm. is something that I think is um, more deficient. Well, that's why I wrote The Incomparable Jesus, is I get right in the trenches and say, what does he want us to learn from this? What is he teaching us here? And then rather than uh, you know quoting uh, general authority, what they might say about it, I, I like to focus on what Jesus had to say about that or what he... More importantly, what he did. I want to talk about that a little more. Let me ask you one more question before we get there. So, between that time um, and now, uh, what, what, 
what's happened is the church, you know, I've heard rumors about the church, like, uh, skulking you out and all that sort of stuff. Um, ha- has it become less eventful or, or have there been any updates in your story, um, since that, uh, since that time of your disfellowship? Well, I was disfellowshipped in December or November of 2004, two years after the book came out. And I've had some, uh, oh, interactions with, um, my, my stake presidents and bishops. Um, in fact, my conversations with them are on, uh, on my home page, which we'll announce at the end of this, this interview. Uh, so the, a lot of that stuff's there. A lot of the stuff I've written is there in the last 10 years. Um, I think they're, they're just kind of watching me, you know. I mean, I wrote an article last, uh, last spring about this time for the Kansas City Journal of Theology, a little obscure thing. Mm-hmm. And bang, there's a stake president knocking on my door. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, somebody had sent it to him. and uh, Somebody, huh? Yeah, I think it was, you know. Uh, the strengthening the members committee or I, whatever they call someone it. Someone like something like that, yeah. But, he, you know, he's right there. They're... they're <laughs> They were right there when I appeared on the CBS, uh, um, the Mormons. Uh-huh. He was right there, boy. He was ready to, you know, do me in. And but they haven't pulled the trigger. You're still disfellowship. I just, I just regard myself as having graduated from Mormonism. <laughs> I, you know, that's kind of where I. So I, I take it you don't attend anymore. Then I haven't attended for about five, six years. I, you know, I thought I could start out doing that, but they're so. There's so many things said over a Mormon pulpit that are not true. Mm-hmm. And after a while, it kind of bothers you. And, and you <laughs> say to yourself, if I speak out and preach at a Sunday school, I'm going to just hurt somebody's feelings. <laughs> and I'll probably get reported to the bishop. And if I don't speak out, then I get kind of frustrated. So I just says, I, I don't think I want to go. No, I, I feel exactly the same. I, you know, I feel a kinship. I still feel that I'm part of the Mormon people. Yeah. Um, I've never bothered to resign. I don't feel inclined to do so. Um, I, there's parts of church I miss. I miss, uh, many of the hymns. I miss a lot of our traditions. I miss the people. Um, the way Mormons take care of each other, the way they're, they're, but you, just what you said, you know, every time I go, there's some cockamamie, uh, thing out there that's just like it's just too much it just aggravates me I remember Sterling McMurrin telling, telling me once uh, he's a philosopher at the University of Utah and uh, I told him I was going into the church education system and he looked at me and said good luck because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he used to be in it you see right and anyway he uh, Another thing he caught my attention, he says, it's probably true to say that much of what is said over a Mormon pulpit is probably not true. And I thought, wow, that's a really strong statement. <laughs> but I think as, as time goes on, I might identify more with that. Well, and I, you know, I go into Desert Book, and they have a whole section laid out for for Sean Hannity and, uh, and Glenn, Beck. Glenn Beck. And, you know, just like, you guys got to, I mean, that's... When I, once again, I'm no expert on Christianity, but when I read the Bible and I hear Glenn Beck, I can't imagine two things, you know, two, more separate from each other. 
Well, like I was saying a little while ago, I, I think there's a, there's a bifurcated Jesus going on, uh, the New Testament Jesus and the Mormon Jesus. And if you read the, uh, I mean, the New Testament Jesus is quite inclusive. The Mormon Jesus tends to be more exclusive. Mm. Uh, Jesus absolutely detested legalism. And, and I have seen the LDS church become more legalistic since the <laughs> David O. McKay era, clear back, ended in about 1970, and it seems to be getting more so. Uh, the Jesus of the New Testament is uh, more invitational, uh, not so vindictive, especially with believers. He's very, uh, allows free agency. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, not as authoritarian. Uh, the third Nephi Jesus, he's very vindictive. Right? In 16 <laughs> cities that are destroyed, it's almost like, and I, Jesus, caused these cities to sink in the sea or whatever. And then when you get into um, the Sermon on the Mount, it's I command you this and I command you that. Take a look at third Nephi 18. It's just full of just unbelievable, I command you to do this. It's, it's just not the New Testament personality and behavior of Jesus. He's much softer. In 3 Nephi 18 also, you'll see that uh, where the New Testament Jesus lets people take the sacrament, it's between them and God, not not in 3 Nephi or the Mormon Jesus. He's, the ecclesiastical leaders get to make that decision, you see. Mm -hmm. And when that was one of my ongoing discussions with my bishop and stake president, is I says, look, I don't have any problem with, serious problems with Jesus. Uh, I have my problems with Joseph and and I'd like to take the sacrament over there because uh, uh, these covenants are made with God, not with the church or Joseph Smith. And, uh -huh. and, and by denying me, it seems to me you're elevating uh, Joseph over Jesus. I still believe that's a problem I have. And, and some people might think they're not a very Christ-centered church just for that alone. But nothing ever resonated with them, and uh, I never did get to take the sacrament. Well, so where did, it, you know, um, Joseph... Joseph, you know, came up with the Book of Mormon in 1830, but he himself didn't quote from it very much. You know, he was more of a, of a, you know, he used the Bible more often. So we started out on the same sort of Protestant American roots as everybody else. Yeah. Where, where did we depart theologically from the rest of the world? I mean, where, where did that happen, do you think? Right after the Book of Mormon. You think it's the Book of Mormon that did it? Well, the Book of Mormon is basically a Protestant uh, doctrine. Uh, it's there's not a lot in that book that would be offensive to uh, an evangelical Christian. No, I agree. The Book of Mormon, you can't get Mormonism out of the Book of Mormon. No. No, you can. Uh, it, it just slowly developed in the way it developed. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, Revelations, uh, started becoming his revision of the Bible from 31 through 33 after the Book of Mormon. His, uh, it just kind of evolved. He got new ideas and new input in the, in the way they went. Um, I, I've said this before to some of the listeners, but um, when I was struggling with faith, I, I started reading a little bit, like I said, in the Bible, and I realized quickly that I did not understand um, what I was, what I was dealing with. So I got two books. I got one on the history of the, of the church, the, you know, the Christian church. And I got another basic systematic theology book. And I'm no expert in those today, but I soon realized that I had no idea. You know, I just, there'd been these questions, these debates going on for 2000 years 
deep theological thinking, not like some flippant servant of Satan trying to deceive, but people really trying to understand. And that I realized I didn't even understand the basic questions they were asking. Um, so, so take framing that, um, where do you think like Mormons, you know, what are some of the fundamental things that, that the church and its doctrines misunderstand about Christianity and the teachings of Christ? I know that that's a big one. Well, the, um, well, two areas of doctrinal emphasis in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles is, uh, is, as Jesus said, you must be born again. And it's almost like the LDS Jesus has run away from that. But, but Jesus spends a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount of what it means to be born again. So does Peter, so does Paul, so does John. And, uh, that's a doctrinal emphasis that that the New Testament makes that the LDS Church seems to run away from. It's in their scriptures. It's in Mosiah and Alma, but they I don't know if they don't want to talk about it because evangelical Christianity does. I don't know what it is, but they uh, another doctrinal emphasis of difference is uh, is uh, saved through the grace of God and not of your own works or ordinances which the LDS Jesus really focuses on. In fact, he makes a big deal of higher ordinances, the Mormon Jesus. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus never talked much about tithing in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament church did not practice the law of tithing. It was, it was an Old Testament uh, for, the, for the Levite priesthood and for the poor. And when Jesus came along, he says, well, we're still going to take care of the poor, but we're doing away with the Levite priesthood. Every man's his own priest. And... Uh, We'll, we'll go from there. And if you look in 1 Corinthians uh, 16 or 2 Corinthians 9, it says, pay as you're able. Uh, be a generous and cheerful giver, but there's no 10% tax. And, uh, the, and the New Testament Jesus does not make it a, a requirement to get into his heaven. The Mormon Jesus does. If you don't pay that 10%, you don't get the temple ticket, and if you don't get that ticket, you don't get the higher ordinances, and you don't live with God. So it's a big deal to the Mormon Jesus, but to the New Testament Jesus, it's it's not all that big a deal. Same thing with wine. Jesus drinks wine. Uh, the disciple, he, he talks about those who follow him and reach heaven, they'll have a drink in heaven, it says, a drink of the new, you know, wine. Uh, so you, you see this bifurcated personality I keep talking about. You, you don't see... He, the Mormon Jesus is completely against all this. And the New Testament Jesus says, I'm more concerned about what you take, what goes out of your mouth and what goes into your mouth. And the, and the LDS Jesus is, uh, is concerned with all kinds of things that Jesus never was. He, he talked about the things that matter most in the New Testament. And uh, and then he he referred to all this legalistic stuff as the quote the commandments of men uh, straining at gnats, and he grew up and saw the way that illegalistic religion of his day he did not like it. But you can actually the Mormon Jesus is 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 really high on a lot of different uh, minutia I would call it. You can start from the top of the head and work down. He doesn't like long hair. He doesn't like facial hair. 
He doesn't like any more, you know, earrings. He doesn't like what tells you what goes in your mouth. Uh, you, you should wear a white shirt. They issue the church underwear, and they want to know if you wear it day or night. This does not strike me as the personality of the New Testament Jesus at all. Yeah, you know, when I read the New Testament, I, I don't see Jesus, you know, putting aside Paul. I don't see him even interested that much in a church. You know, he's a, he's a to me... Again, he's a man of the people. He hangs out with the prostitutes and sinners and publicans. and He's more inclusive. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the church today. We have this structure where you have all the men on the red chairs and only this person and these people. And, you know. Well, Jesus talks about that, the chief, seeking the chief seats and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and wearing special garb and going uh -huh. by special titles and, and uh, this kind of thing. So uh, that would be maybe... One of the themes today is is I would really encourage to see your religious leaders through the eyes of the teachings of Jesus in the Bible and don't see Jesus through the eyes of your religious leaders. When you do that, things begin to open up. And this is a, this is a, an important distinction, I do believe. Uh, there, there are myriads of, 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 dis, uh, of things that you will come to your mind. I mean, Jesus, for example, says when you give aid to the poor, don't trumpet it. Don't go down and get a reporter and, and announce how many bales of this you sent over to where. How they, they announced in conference how many tons they sent to Japan. But Jesus know. says do it. If, look, he's very fair about this. He says if you do it in secret, uh, God will reward you. But if you do it for a motivation, for a purpose, then you have your reward. And and the Elders Church, I think, is perfectly happy to trumpet it because they're trying to improve the image of the church. They're trying to uh, use it for proselyting purposes. But there's literally dozens of issues like this. You know, the Catholic Church ran into problems when the English Bible began to be published, and they did not want their people to read it. They put John Wycliffe and... Oh, who's the other? And they burned him at the stake. One of them had died. They dug up his bones and burned him anyway. <laughs> um, why? Because they weren't focusing on the New Testament. And uh, Martin Luther knew it, and he let him have it. And uh, the Internet has become this same problem for the Elders Church. All the stuff they thought had buried and was tacked down has <laughs> all come up and is out there in spades. And... Uh, so I just think that if you take a serious look at the New Testament, you'll find a, a different, uh, a different personality, a diff emphasis on different behavior. The, the New Testament Jesus acts differently, and I think he emphasizes doctrinal differences. That that the LDS Jesus is is they're, they're quite divided on this, quite separated. I think one thing that's striking to me is, you know, in the 19th century, Mormonism offered a lot of unique doctrines, doctrines that are still around but are really downplayed, you know, like the divinity of mankind, mm -hmm. the pre-existence, and some of the some of these things like that. Um, and so, so 19th century converts were joining the the, the church of authority. The church has always said we're the tr one true church, and you have to go through us. But it was also a selection of an alternative. And as we become more and more sort of mainstream Protestant, it seems to me the only thing that's left anymore is this authority, which strikes me very much sort of, yeah, pre-Reformation Catholic Church, you know, where, like indulgences, you know, we, we have almost a similar thing, not as 
not as blatant, but members are told that you should do your temple work for your ancestors and you have to pay your tithing, you have to get your temple recommend, do so. So you almost, in a sense, are paying your ancestors out of hell again. You know, the same thing that... I the, never thought of it quite that way, but I... I, it's, I mean, I'm yeah. a little a bit of hyperbole there, yeah. of course, but, you know, it, it's it's the same thing. We are in control. You give us treasure, you give us money, and then we will give you access to Well, it's God. a brilliant corporate model. It just isn't based on the New <laughs> Testament. <laughs> now, in the um, Incomparable Jesus... Um, there are several times you use um, Book of Mormon passages in a, in a favorable light. You know, it's not all critical, critical to the Book of Mormon. I did that to please the publisher. Because <laughs> originally there was zero in there. I well, wanted to make sure there was zero in there. Now, to me, and I, once again, I, am, I have to say again, I am no theological expert. But when I read the Book of Mormon today, I see it as sort of a blatant ripoff of Christianity in 19th century, 19th century views. You know, I see things that obviously came from the Greeks that are supposed to be, you know, in Mesoamerica 400 years before Christ or whatever. I just, I just can't get my head beyond that stuff. Well, I so, sent you some stuff on the, yeah. did you get that? that yeah, yeah. Yeah. I gave Robin a copy of it too. And I mean, about six sources can wrap up easily 75% of the content of the Book of Mormon comes right out of Joseph's backyard and it's 19th century material. The earliest people don't realize that 22 to 25% of the of the Book of Mormon is right out of the 1769 edition of the King James Bible because it carries the heirs of that edition. So, so in a nutshell, for those who have only read the Book of Mormon, what are the telltale signs that mark it as a 19th century work in terms of Christianity? I mean, you mentioned one already, that they that oh. just lifted the, the, the Well, this, this is what, well, I'd say 25% of the of the Book of Mormon comes right out of that 1769 edition of the King James Bible, including its heirs. That's what's important. There. Right. I'd say another 25% comes out of uh, uh, Methodistism. Joseph said he was partial to them. He went as often as he could to the revivals, and boy, does it show up. In the Book of Mormon, he uh, if you if you, I'm a colonial, I did a lot of my emphasis on my PhD level was colonial history mm-hmm. and the Second Great Awakening and religion in America. They had four or five focuses, and these were mine. But I I began to find that from Jacob, Enos, Benadi, Benjamin, right up through Alma forty two, and that's a big chunk of the Book of Mormon. Um, that those 11 preachers are, it's just like reading right out of the Second Great Awakening. I mean, that the, the doctrine is the same. The conversion pattern is a four-step pattern. The, uh, the style, the, the wording, the, just, just everything. You can see it in my insider's view of Mormon origins. But that's what really struck me. I thought, he's getting this stuff out of his own backyard. And people say, well, you, could, you couldn't possibly have written the book. Well, the things that are in the book are the things that he was very, very familiar with. He had a, uh, he said, right in his 1832 account, that he had a, uh, what was the word? Uh, he, he had talked to lots of people about their views on Methodist and evangelical Christianity, and boy, do they show up in the Book of Mormon. So that's another 25%. So there's half the Book of Mormon right there. Mm-hmm. 
you're at a revival and don't know. That's why you feel this feeling. <laughs> and, and the church is more and more going to that feeling because the intellectual constructs have been kicked out from under the faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they would say, um, and, and you know, just pause for a second there and simply say this, that, uh, you know, everyone has hunches and intuitions and spiritual feelings for, for what we do in, in life. Almost everybody does that. Secular, spiritual, doesn't matter. But when those things don't come to pass, when the facts come in, when the evidence comes in, the mature person says, gee, uh, I guess I was wrong, and changes their mind. Mm-hmm. The earliest church is going, they're saying, well, have faith in it anyway. Right. Or have faith against knowledge. And, and that's a real problem. But back to your question. So 50% is from those two sources. I'd say another 25% is from four other sources. Uh, probably Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. The outline seems to be very similar. B.H. Robert showed that. Smith family biographical material, such as uh, Joseph Sr.'s... Uh, uh, 18, uh, 11, uh, Lehi's dream type thing, mm-hmm. and then another dream. Um, I would say uh, the, the military campaigns are, are similar to what his relatives went through in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, especially the British strategies of, uh, uh, of when, they, when the British and the Indians gained up on gained up on the Americans. That's very similar. I would say anti-Masonic feeling is very much in the Book of Mormon. Later it's embraced in Nauvoo, but in the Book of Mormon it's anti-Masonic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the arguments that were in the newspapers 1828 during the election of Andrew Jackson are, are there in 3rd Nephi and Helaman. Uh, and so you can take every section of the Book of Mormon and you can pretty well tell where he's getting the material. Bottom line, 75% of the Book of Mormon came right out of his own backyard, 19th century stuff. And Farms likes to dwell on that extra 25%. We're not sure where it came from, but they've got a huge problem to answer. And that is, why would 75% come from his own backyard when it uh, is purported to be an ancient record of an ancient people <laughs> 2,500 years ago. Yeah, I see things as simple as, you know, when in the Book of Mormon, when they describe the, the Lamanites, you know, with um, red face paint and shorn heads and loincloths and the embattlements, he's basically describing the Iroquois who, you know, he lived nearby. It, and, the, you know, Farms tries to put the Book of Mormon down in, you know, in uh, Mesoamerica, but the simpler solution is Joseph Smith was just describing the Indian culture he was familiar with. Well, they can't pin it down. I've, I've even heard that it's over in uh, Asia or Malaysia or someplace. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's in uh, New England. No, it's in Central America. It's, uh, it's down in Guatemala. No, it's over by the Panama Canal. No, it's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> But I like your point about farms, you know, because they'll get all wrapped around the axle of something like Nahum. And then forget that Joseph Smith lived right near the Lehigh Valley. You know, what's more likely that he pulled the name Lehigh from his own experience or that he was able to, you know, they'll ignore those obvious Yeah, they reach for threads. Right. But structurally, so you've got a real problem there. And the same thing's true of the Book of Abraham. I mean, we, we, I would say we, we have nowhere 100% of the material came for the Book of Abraham. <laughs> I mean, you know, like chapter one came from Josephus, facsimile three. 
chapters 2, 4, and 5, 86% of those three chapters comes right out of the King James Bible. And we, again, uh, including the heirs of the 1769 edition. And then chapter 3, the astronomy stuff, in fact, simile 2, the, the hypocephalus, that comes from two sources, uh, Joseph Owen, Thomas Dick's philosophy of a future state, and... Uh, I mean, he talks about intelligences, uh, exact phrases are, are, are taken out of that book, and also another one by the name of Thomas Taylor, The Six Books of Proclus on the Theology of Plato, Volume 2. Mm -hmm. Another five or six exact phrases. It's Newtonian stuff. It's been discredited. He bought into it, and uh, you can't find any astronomers at BYU that uh, think there's... make. But the astronomy in the book Abraham makes heads or tails. I've talked to a couple of them that, that they don't even want to go there. It's <laughs> nothing to do with. It's been discredited by and large by uh, Einstein's uh, worldview and cosmology and so forth. I think that's a really excellent point. I want to underline it again because if you took the Book of Mormon and gave it to somebody in the 14th century, their astronomy, they wouldn't recognize it. You give it to uh, 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 some Americans, just some commonly educated Americans in the 19th century, they would say, oh, yeah, that's the way we understand it. You give it to people in the 20th century, they'd be like, this is nonsense. So it, even though it seems ancient and sort of um, um, strange to the reader today, it fits right in this special place, right where Joseph Smith came up with it. Well, exactly. And, uh, that, yeah, that, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's... I mean, we could spend another 10 minutes talking about that. In the, at the end of my chapter 4, I talk about that uh, on, the, uh, on evangelical Protestantism. Evangelical Protestantism starts with Luther and, and, and Calvin and so forth. And by the time it gets down to Joseph Smith's era, they're discussing Arminianism, which is, you know, it's more of a refinement. And what do you find? You find exactly where the dialogue is in <laughs> where Protestantism in Joseph's day. It's right. evolved. And yeah. that's what you find and what you'd expect to find if you felt that he created the book. And it's, it's, it's the um, criticism that Alexander Campbell had, you know, which is yeah. the book fits right in all the questions of exactly today. Exactly. And I've even heard some apologists admit, you know, when, when they've said the Book of Mormon was written for our time, some apologists say, well, that means for 1830, because it's clearly not for, you know, the 21st century, because they're dealing with these theological questions from back then that just aren't as interesting to us today. Yeah, most of them are not, yeah. Um, and one, you know, one that I know of in there is, is that baptism by immersion um, for the remission of sins, which was a big sort of issue in the 19th century, I understand it, but not so much today. Well, and the same with little children need not be baptized. That was mm -hmm. a huge issue back then. Right. Yeah. Um, and said we baptize mature eight-year-olds. <laughs> so, um, are there any ideas in your mind that are uniquely Mormon that provide some sort of dialogue in the Christian, in the, in the Christian, has Mormonism in, the, in its 170 years here come up with anything interesting or added to the dialogue on Christianity, in your opinion? I'm sure there are some things, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to 
quite answer your question. I'm going to say, <laughs> I, you know, to me, it doesn't matter if there was this major apostasy from the New Testament church. We have the words of Jesus. He's telling us what we need to do to get to heaven. If Joseph Smith went into a sacred grove in 1820, um, it would have been wonderful, wonderful to me if Jesus would have simply said, you know, nobody's doing what I say to do in there. It's like Gandhi used to say, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. <laughs> uh, and and there was a that's a, been a problem ever since. You have all these two, three thousand varieties of Christian churches, and they all, what do they disagree over? Largely things that Jesus had nothing or little to say. But Jesus isn't really a doctrinal kind of a person. He doesn't sit down and say, well, today we're going to talk about the nature of the Godhead or the nature of man. It's a behavioral focus. And uh, I think I think Joseph would have really had something if he had come out of there and said, well, um, I really am not very happy with people arguing about all these doctrinal differences. What I'd like to see happen is to have a more uh, behavioral focus. And most Christian churches focus on the same behavioral emphasis. Now, the LDS have added a few things here and there. They have the pre-earth life, which I, I think, to me, helps explain the fall of man. Mm -hmm. um, I like the idea of uh, um, the sense of community. Uh, but are you, are you asking me if they made a contribution beyond... Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't given that a whole lot of thought. Uh, well, you know, from my opinion, I see Joseph Smith and then maybe to some extent Orson Pratt um, coming up with these interesting ideas. And then we have this 150-year retreat from the things that are uniquely Mormonism, a lot of which I think are interesting and valuable um, and offer different views, some of them a little bit more Eastern in flavor. You know, they're, they're not like... They're not like bad ideas, and I wish that the church, if it was retreating towards a mainstream Christianity, would do like you're suggesting and adopt that, well, the pattern is of Jesus. How do we treat each, other's, each other well? Rather than that in, in, in incessant drumming that we are the one and only true church, well, yeah. and you need our ordinances and nothing else real, everything else is secondary. You know? Well, and there, you know, President Monson is at least the first couple of years he's in, say, please come back. But in the, if you look at the Priestly Release Society manuals, I know the one in 2009, I think it's Lesson 27, The Bitter Fruits of Apostasy. Uh -huh. They says, beware of apostates. They lost the spirit, uh, will likely persecute you, and probably committed a major sin. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's, uh, systematically teaches the believers how to deal with... Uh, people that are leaving or have left the faith, and I don't think it's very healthy. I remember Martin Marty, he's the head of the uh, Chicago Divinity School, I think he's Lutheran, and he was asked, what do, you, how, what do you see in the future of Mormonism? And he says, I think that depends a lot on how Mormons treat those who disagree with them, who leave the faith. Mm -hmm. And they're not. the church isn't doing a very good job of that. I mean, I think they'll eventually mature somewhat, but right now it's pretty miserable because they're basically teaching the people in our neighborhoods and in some cases your well your own children to to think less of you because you have left or you you don't believe the same way as they do 
And I think that's an unfortunate uh, way of doing business. Yeah, I, I think the church has made some big mistakes there. You know, if you ask most mainstream Mormons, you know, to name some famous Mormons, they'll come up with things like Donny Osmond. Mm -hmm. But there have been Pulitzer Prize winners and Nobel Prize winners and great artists and authors, and most of them fall outside the traditional camp. And the church just pretends they don't exist. If you look at the family of Mormonism, of people who have left the faith or who have become, you know, not not your average typical Sandy Mormon, there's this there's this great rich heritage that we share that the Mormons are just ignoring because they can't. I've used the example before that I'm a graduate of, of, of BYU. No matter what success I attain in life, I will never, my alma mater will never acknowledge me. You know, and I, I'm not a great man or anything, but I, I, there's zero chance I'll ever speak at BYU that I'll ever be honored by my own university. Well, you're right. You know who Craig Ventner is? Mm -hmm. but, but you, he, he was born in Salt Lake City. He's a Mormon. Uh -huh. And then very young, he left California. He's the guy that completed the Human Genome Project. That's right. a big deal. They'd never acknowledge him. Right. Or that Julianne Howe, she's a great dancer on Dancing with the Stars, won it several times. She's just inactive, so we don't talk about her. Or uh, what's that other one? Uh, Kathleen Hagel, what's her name? Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot all of kinds of them. Aaron Eckhart, there's a lot of great yes. actors. And, yes. um, and like I say, you know, award-winning authors, we have a, a rich heritage. And, and, and yet if you, if you're... It's amazing to me what they're doing to this Jimmer for debt. I mean, there's all kinds of kids that they're, Mormons are naming their babies Jimmer now. And, <laughs> uh, and he's even announced he's not going on a mission. They're still going to love him and, 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 and claim him. And they just latch on to anything that will, will promote the faith. Um, I, I don't know. It's a strange thing. Well, I think kind of to take it back to where we're talking about, about Jesus in the New Testament, I think sort of metaphoric for the church is their incessant clinging to the King James Version. And it should be noted, they don't even use the King James Version of 1611. And they don't even know that, right? Or at least most of them don't. But, you know, the, the, the Bible is this ancient document of all this rich heritage. Take it as, as metaphor and history and myth, or take it as a literal truth. It is of, but, is a valuable book, but they, but they constrain themselves to this language they hardly understand. And I think that's sort of metaphoric for the, for their position in general. They have the New Testament. They, they are part of the Christian world, but they choose to build these walls. Um, well, that's, a, that's, the King James Bible business is, is a losing proposition. <laughs> Phil Barlow teaches, uh, some kind of, has a chair up at Utah State University. He teaches Mormon studies up there or something. And uh, he tells me that, uh, about 3% a year abandon the King James Bible. And so if you, in other words, we're, we're heading for a time when people are not going to be using at all the King James Bible, except the Mormons and the Mormon missionaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally, the, uh, the King James Bible is, is quite nice. I, I enjoy reading it. But if you want to learn something, <laughs> go to the NIV, you know. Well, that's where I, when I was faithful at, at the end, I would have them both open. Exactly. And, and then I would realize when I read the other how little I understood. Well, they don't want you using the NIV over there. I have right. a friend that was asked to stop using it. It's been a few years, but that's that's the way it is. So they use the King James Bible largely because of a study by uh, one of the general authorities. Why the King James Bible by um, 
oh, what's his name? Uh, J. J. Ruben, Ruben Clark. Clark. Yeah, and uh, and their theology in, is interpreted, uh, you know, dispensationalism and things, but. All of these proof texts that are used, none of them stand up. You mm -hmm. realize that. None of them. Yeah, I, I, Paul Toscano has a great theory, which I, I, I really like, which is basically the Book of Mormon is so boring. And, of course, the King James Bible tends to be that way, too, because you don't understand it. That what it does is it produces sort of a trance effect, <laughs> sort of like Buddhist monks chanting in Bali. Um, so that rather than learn anything from the book, then it produces this state, which... Is, is valuable, you know, prayer and meditation, all that stuff, where, where we can sort of commune with ourselves or commune with God. I don't have any problem with that. But we're missing out on the point that there's stuff written in the book, there's stuff that Jesus said that is of value to mankind. Oh, I, I see Mormonism becoming more legalistic. It's becoming more irrelevant, I think, and this King James Bible is an example of it. I mean, you know, I, I was reading the other day about uh, cult-like behaviors and, and uh, you know, I think they said something about, well, occult-like behaviors have extreme leadership. And the early presidents of the church would certainly come under extreme leadership. Definitely. Lack of financial transparency, behavioral control. We talked about that if you go from the head down to the feet. Uh, information control. You you know, they want you to do the manual. Uh Thought control, if you sit in there and ask too many questions, you start saying, did, how many wives did Joseph Smith have? And I understand 11 of them were married women. You'll be down to the bishop's office. So uh -huh. there's a certain amount of thought control going on, uh, information control. And you can fill in your examples, uh, behavioral control, emotional control, uh, you know, making people feel guilty and the questions that are asked at various levels. Uh, all of these things, uh, it, it seems to me that Mormonism is getting away from the liberality and the broad sweep that even Joseph Smith had. They're getting very cloistered and very legalistic as time goes on. And, and they're losing so many 20 and 30-somethings that I think that they're they're worried about this, and rightly so, because that's who's going to raise the next generation of Mormons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but you you reap what you sow. You know, if if you put when when was the last theologian in office? Really, maybe Bruce R. McConkie. Um, maybe you could call Packer one, but you put lawyers and doctors and business MBAs. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get a well, church organizational yeah. behavioralists. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, well, they've done a, a, an interesting thing. Uh, they, the church says, don't write us any letters. <laughs> Have your bishop tell you about it. Uh -huh. And the average bishop doesn't know anything about the problems of Mormonism to speak of. They'll say they do, but they're, they're pretty shallow at it. So it's a perfect foil. And then, so you got to talk to your bishop and he says, well, you pray about it and fast and, and read the book of Mormon and, and, and that's, you know, or, or go to farms. And the important problems of our day are uh, our history and, uh, and, and so forth. And the, 
the prophets, seers, and revelators, the prophets aren't prophesying, the seers aren't seeing anything, and the revelators aren't revealing anything, and they've sent it all down to the academies, down to farms. And uh, I think that we'll look back on the time we're in and have just come through as a rather dark period in the church where there was weak <laughs> leadership and not a lot of courage. I, I think so. But, you know, when I was a when I was a kid in high school, I worked at Lagoon. Uh, the amusement park here in mm. Utah. And I work in the ride division and I sort of advanced over the years until I was running the big roller coasters. And whenever they would shut down, whenever we'd have a problem with them, we would take the most junior person there, just as some 15 year old kid who had no idea how anything worked. And we'd put them standing out in front of the ride. So when people came and asked what was wrong, the kid would have no idea what was wrong. Because for us, there was either one of two things. Either we didn't know what was wrong, which is scary, or we knew it was wrong. We weren't saying, yeah. which we have to lie. Yeah. And I see a lot of that happening in, in the church, you know, with the, a lot of the seminary teachers, the bishops, um, the, the manuals, they're all devoid of any information because we want to hold behind that, that there's no real anything going they on. They don't want to have any positions so right. that they can be quoted and, and, and put on uh, and, and held to accountability. Right. They've done a brilliant thing, but it, it doesn't help people that want to. Answers. No, it's 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 a it's a corporate self-preserving move. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it truly is. And I just, you know, I don't I don't know where. I've had a couple of mission presidents call me in the last year, and they both basically, you know, they like my book, and uh, and uh, they just both said that they felt the church was on a on a shortcut to nowhere, <laughs> and that that this is really going to backfire on them, and I think we're beginning to see it backfire. I, I've always said there's four things that that the church would be concerned about. One is the structure, the real church, the bishops, the elders, presidents, the stake presidents on up, and and temple presidents. That's the structure of the church. And I don't, I don't know too many stake presidents that have left the church. I know very few, six or seven mission presidents that have and a temple president, and a lot of members of Bishop Ricks and elders quorum presidents. But even that is, is that's one area of concern. And, and they, don't, they don't have too many leaving in those ranks. But the other three areas I think are, are getting real soft for them would be missionaries. Mm -hmm. I see these kids texting and they can get their internet right on their little palm thing. And, the, and there's a lot of missionaries that are not going because it's number one hard harder than it used to be to get converts and and they hear things and they think well I don't know if I want to go out there or not I've been on the internet and I have all these questions uh -huh. I think that is starting to be a, a problem area for the church definitely I think also the convert baptisms are, are a third area that is a problem after the structure would-be missionaries, convert baptisms, uh, these people get on the internet and, you know, they think, and they ask the missionaries all these questions. The missionaries have been given no preparation. Yeah, we've had, in the past few years, we've had missionaries over for dinner, and I like to ask them, I don't attack them or argue with them, no, but I, I like, I like to ask them basic questions to see what they understand, mm -hmm. and it's amazing how woefully ignorant they are of their own religion and exactly. of, of theological questions. And this is in a day when even if they find their golden contacts and give that first discussion, yeah. everybody who's had any education is going to go Google 
especially if they're under 40 years old. Definitely. And, and these poor missionaries are going to walk into discussion number two completely unprepared for what's going to come out. Well, I know as an institute director, we, we weren't allowed to teach them anything that right, would prepare right. them. Well, that's it's where you say the shortcut to nowhere. It's this these policies, this lattice of policies that is getting to a point that is going to collapse under its own weight. Well, on the, yeah, on the fourth area, after structure, would-be missionaries, convert baptism, I said the fourth area is revenue, tithing, and... Yes, they're converting, you know, two or three hundred thousand people a year, but a lot of them are, uh, they don't have any money or leadership skills, and the church has typically attracted poor people. But who's leading? It's the second, third, fourth, and fifth generation who who do. Right. And uh, I think they are in a, a, you know, we're in a recession, true, but I, I think they probably are losing a certain amount of revenue on the tithing end of things. Well, they burn through a lot of money. I yeah. mean, that's, that's obvious. They have a lot of money. And, you know, people criticize the church for, like, building the mall downtown. And I can understand the criticism. But I see that as a protectionary thing. You know, they want to preserve the revenue basis of their of their organization, which is people going to the temple. It's the same thing that Moyle, you know, President Henry Moyle in the 50s, had this idea that if, if we build more chapels, then we'll get more converts. But, so we'll get yeah. more well, the same thing with the temple. We're doing the same thing with the temple. Well, the temples are revenue um, enhancers. Absolutely, yeah. Because the, the the church itself has shown. I've read studies where if people can go to a temple, they're more likely to hold a temple recommend. Yeah. Ergo, pay their ten percent. The mall is a good example of trying to see the religious leaders through the eyes of Jesus. The question is, <laughs> Jesus built a three plus plus billion dollar mall, and uh, even if he had the money, I mean, what would he do with three billion dollars? I mean, uh, you know, people can answer the way they want to answer, but that's a good example of applying this 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 idea I've been talking about. Is uh, what would Jesus see your religious leaders through the eyes of Jesus, and not the other way around? Well, and you know, the the um, Jesus taught, you know, he rejected legalism, and you know, he taught render to Caesar what is Caesar. Don't fall into the trap. Don't buy into the system. And the church, unfortunately, like with the mall, will have to make all sorts of uncomfortable decisions. Do we allow alcohol in the in the restaurants? Oh, they'll justify it. It's like they did the Hotel Utah. Right. It's, it's for the Gentiles, so we've got to serve them. Serve but then the they force themselves into making a stand on things like yeah. that, where they should just be like Jesus and say, you know, well, that's not our realm. We're not in the realm yeah, of exactly. owning restaurants or owning real estate. You yeah. Know? Right. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the last thought I'd have, and I, I want to get your thoughts on it too, you know, for those who are listening who are still faithful, I, I don't think all is lost. I think that there, that it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, the church can, I think, as you point out very well in The Incomparable Jesus, the church can reform. They can take a different view on some oh, of these they things. will. I think once, if those four areas that I spoke of, if the structure starts, if they start losing state presidents and bishops and the missionaries keep going, would-be missionaries down, the converts keep going down, mm -hmm. and the tithing keeps going down, they will do just about anything to preserve the institution. The church isn't going to disappear. It will change. Mm -hmm. and, and eventually, I think the church will have their little counter-reformation uh, because of what the, the, the mainline Protestants did way back then. I think we'll have... They'll do it slowly, just quietly, and not, they won't talk and announce much. They'll just start not talking about this and start emphasizing that. And 
And the LDS people have a lot of faith in prophets, and they're pretty well, pretty well do what uh, what uh, the, what he says to do. Yeah, they're they're well positioned for that, and they've put in the mechanism for ignoring previous leaders. I I think yeah, the right reformer can come along and and make a lot of good changes for the people. Well, I was always very hopeful. You know, Gorbachev came up; he was through the KGB, <laughs> and he's he uh, you'd think well, he'd be the least likely guy to to, you know, take the blinders off and, and see where reality is as far as where communism was going and where Russia was going. And he finally just thought, we're, we're getting so far behind. We're becoming a third world country here. Uh-huh. The, only, the only reason we're in it is we steal the West's secrets. <laughs> and, uh, and so I have a great deal of hope that, that if he can... You only need one leader to come up through the ranks and... Uh, and start making these changes. I, I don't know if they will, or, or they've structured it now so that they can't. They have to have uniformity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even understood there there's certain divisions within the the top fifteen uh, about should we be more honest about our history. Right. And the problem is you you have to have unanimity among that group in order for them to denounce anything. So as long as you have real uh, conservative types in there, you're never going to get any change. Well, they have unanimity and they vote in in order seniority. So if you're the junior guy and you're a reformer, you hear, yay, 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 yay. It would take a lot of courage or to Or they start that from the top and, right. and uh, voice their opinion. And uh-huh. by the time you get down to you, you better have to be a pretty courageous guy to go buck the system. Especially you, you have viewed these guys as prophets. 30, 40 years, you've known the top guys as that. It, it would take a lot of courage, but I think it can and it will happen. I, I, I look forward to that day. Well, I think so. I think they'll look back on this period, and, and eventually the historians will be more heroic, and it'll be a, a dark period for, for leaders who didn't have much backbone, frankly. Yeah, I agree. To deal with the, with the problems. The only honorable thing to do, I think, for the church is, is to move towards Christ. I mean, that's what uh, I mean, right now they're fighting that tooth and nail. They, they, I don't see a lot of accommodation to Protestant uh, or, or, or more Christ-centered church. I, I don't see it. I, there might be some small things, but I, I think they're resisting it big time still. Yeah, and I, I think it's just their nature. Like I said, you get MBAs, and they're not real concerned about Christian theology, you know. So, well, Grant, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, your two books are still out there and available, Insider's View of Mormon Origins and the Follow-Up to Incomparable Jesus. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's get out your, uh, your, your website, and I'll put a link up on um, our page. It's, um, uh, if you go to www.mormonthink.com, that's mormonthink, one word, slash grantpalmer.htm, um, and that's where you've got your, your writings are up there, and and what, what else is up there on that um, page? Oh, conversations I've had with bishops, stake presidents, uh, John DeLynn interviews, uh, uh, radio interviews, uh, uh, Sunstone presentations, uh, things of that nature, reviews of my books, things like that. Well, excellent. Well, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and I appreciate you talking to us. Well, thank you. <laughs>